We're in Romans chapter 2 again this morning, taking a look at Paul's methodical approach to the gospel presentation. In the first three chapters, from chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, we have the problem presented, the fallen condition of mankind. Every single person who has ever lived has needed a Savior, has needed salvation. We all, at one point in our lives, lived lives under the wrath of God. In these chapters, Paul presents that reality to us. He started out in chapter 1 with the basics, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, professing to be wise yet becoming fools, exchanging the truth of God for a lie, and worshiping and serving the creation rather than the Creator. Every single person starts out with a rejection of God, and that's what he presented in chapter 1. Then, as we came to chapter 2, we saw him turn to another group of people going from the general to the specific, people with more knowledge than the first group. This second group of people, as we have made our way through the chapter, has proven to have an advantage over the first group, in that more information has been revealed to them. They pass judgment on the first group. Because of their increase in knowledge, they feel like they will escape the judgment of God that the first group will go through because of who they are. Even though they do the same things, they commit the same sins. They feel that since they have special knowledge from God, special blessings, that God will give them a pass when it comes to the sinful things that they do. In our last study, from verses 12 through 16, we saw that this special knowledge came in the form of the law, the Mosaic law that God gave to the nation of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. We talked about those who were under the law, the Israelites, and those who were not under the law, the Gentiles, and how the judgment of God will rightfully and impartially fall upon both groups of people who live their lives practicing sin, rejecting God and living their lives for themselves. This group of people that Paul was alluding to from verse 1 as his argument changed form no longer talking about them or they, as he did in the first chapter, but now he was addressing them as you. These are the Jews, God's chosen people, his chosen nation, to whom he had given every spiritual blessing. And yet, even with those blessings, those advantages, they are not any better off than anyone else. They are still in this discussion here on fallen man. The point that Paul is making with looking at these two groups, Jew and Gentile, and keep in mind, these two groups cover everyone. If you are not a physical descendant of Israel, of God's chosen nation, then you are a Gentile. But the point that he's making is, it doesn't matter who you are, which group you belong to. You are at rock bottom. If you are of the nation of Israel and are under the law, then great, you will be judged by the ordinances and provisions of the law. When God looks at your life on the day of judgment, you will be judged by the law. If you are not under the law, if you don't have those specific ordinances and provisions given to you, then great, you will be judged by the things that all men know to be true, what is right and wrong. No one gets a pass. There is no one who is without excuse, no one whom God will say, oh, that person didn't know. No, God will judge impartially, and he will judge absolutely. It's not a pretty picture, 
These are not encouraging chapters that we're seeing here. But as I said, Paul has to take us first to rock bottom in his discussion of the gospel so that we know from what mankind needs to be rescued, from what he needs to be saved. And that is God's judgment upon our own sinful lives. All men are under God's wrath and headed for God's judgment. People don't understand this. They don't see their need for salvation. People like to think, I'm not that bad. God wouldn't hold that against me. There are others who are far worse than I am. But these attitudes show a lack of understanding of the seriousness of their situation before God and show a lack of understanding of the level of offense that they have given God by rejecting him. Keep in mind, that is the true sin. Rejection of God, rejection of who he is, of what he has revealed. The Gentiles, they rejected the very creation, ignoring what was right in front of their faces and giving the glory for it all to the creation instead. The Jews, they're guilty of the same thing, but just in a different way. They know the name of God. It had been revealed to them who God was, but they still reject him. They are no less guilty of rejecting him. When they take God's law, God's promises, and begin to create a works-based system around keeping those ordinances in order to be saved, in order to obtain righteousness, they weren't honoring God. They weren't obeying him. They were instead setting up their own man-made system as a means of salvation. In effect, they were setting themselves up as God. By doing that, they were therefore rejecting God the same as the Gentiles were. And we'll see that as we work our way through this passage today, that they were really no better off. That was true of the nation of Israel. But we see the same things today as well. Many people today put their assurance in things that they can touch or that they can do. They feel like they have to be masters of their own destiny. That's a big part of the problem with those who feel that their works are going to get them to heaven. They don't see their need to trust in God, and they feel like they have to contribute. They have to do it on their own. When it came to the nation of Israel, the Jews had taken things into their own hands. But they did it under the pretense that they were still following God's will, when in fact they weren't. The problem became one of the heart. They might have been outwardly doing things that God had commanded, but their hearts weren't right before him. Therefore, what they were doing was no longer pleasing to him. The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 1, uh, starting in verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. 
New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Even though they were doing what they had always done, their repetitious actions were no longer pleasing to God because they were doing them with unclean hearts and their lives were no longer obedient to him. And yet they were relying on the things that they were doing, on who they were as a nation and fooling themselves into believing that they were still acceptable to God. We looked at this some last week, and we'll continue on with it this week. Last time, we talked about how the Jews had the law, and they felt like having the law was good enough. They were the Jews. They were the only nation to which God had given his law, and therefore, they were in. They were saved already. But they were sadly mistaken on that point. In the final verses of the chapter, we'll see ways in which they relied on things that gave them false assurance. How they relied on what they could do or what was true of them and trusted in that for their salvation. We're going to take a larger section of the chapter this week, but it all goes together and it moves fairly quickly. And as we go through here, I think it will make sense as we go along. And we'll start off with verses 17 through 24, and we'll look at how they relied on their knowledge of the law for their assurance. As Paul will present a list of privileges that they had as Jews, and then show their failures in light of those privileges that they had received. So we start in verse 17, where he starts off by saying, But if you bear the name Jew, Jew, they are identified for the first time here in verse 17. It becomes clear to us which group he's been alluding to since the beginning of chapter 2. But even now, there's a slight question. Because notice here how he uses the phrase, bear the name. He doesn't outright call them Jews, but he's talking to those who call themselves Jews. And this will prove to be important as we get to the end of the chapter. When he talks about what it really means to be a Jew and shows the difference between someone who calls themselves a Jew and who is truly a Jew. The Jewish people were a race that had specific privileges given them by God, privileges that no other nation had. They were God's chosen people. We already saw that back in the first chapter, how they were given priority in salvation. Because Jesus came to his own people first, the nation of Israel. The word Jew originally came from the tribe of Judah, the southern kingdom during the, the time when the nation was split. But over the course of time, such as in Paul's day, the term was used to refer to anyone descended from the land of Israel. So we see that we are talking about the Jews. But then Paul's going to go into a discussion on what privileges the Jews had. And we'll see that the beneficial things that God had graciously given them were really used in judgment against them because they didn't hold to the law as they should with a heart that is right before God. So what comes next is a series of things that aren't bad, nor are they incorrect about being a Jew, 
But in practice, the Jews are going to fall far short of what these privileges really mean. And you know how he continues, even in the rest of verse 17. He says, bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God. First thing mentioned is that they relied on the law. They had been given the law by God, including all portions of Scripture. God had given instructions to his people on how to live in obedience to him, a guide that no one else on earth had been given. But over time, they began to rely on it more than they should have. And as we've said, they turned it into a system of works that they had no hope of keeping. As we talked about in our last lesson, the the law was never intended to be a means of salvation. Rather, it was designed to be a guide, a tutor, to reveal to Israel their need for God and for his salvation to come upon them. The Jews felt that having been given the law made them exempt from being condemned. But as we saw in the previous verses, having the law was not enough. You had to be a doer of the law. Now, as he continues on, the next things listed show, uh, show things that the Jews learned from the law. The first one being they could boast in God. Having received the law and knowing more about him gave them the opportunity to boast in him. Boasting done the wrong way in the wrong things is bad. But there is a right way to boast. Turn with me over to the ninth chapter of Jeremiah. Um, In the ninth chapter of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah says, if you look down at verse 23 of this chapter, Jeremiah 9.23, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might, let not a rich man boast of his riches. So there is a wrong way to boast. Don't boast in those things. Now we come to verse 24. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. This is what they were to do. They were to boast in God. Again, that wasn't a bad thing. God is truly worthy of this. And the Jew, living a right life, could do this with confidence. But again, we keep in mind, we're not talking to Jews living rightly here. Paul is writing about those who are under condemnation. So they call themselves Jew, and they rely on the law, and they claim that they boast in God. And then he continues in verse 18, and know his will, and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law. So here he continues on. They know his will. Being given the law, they had insight into the very will of God. It was presented right there in front of them. They had that privilege of being given God's word, knowing the things that God wanted them to know. And they could approve the things that are essential. The word for approve here has the idea of testing as if by fire, being able to test the worth or the value of something. The Jews had the ability, because of the knowledge that God had given them, to know what was right and wrong. But more than that, they knew what was essential or best. They could rightly determine between truth and error, 
good doctrine and bad doctrine, what was pleasing to God and what displeased him. And how could they do that? Because they were instructed out of the law. This has the idea of of being given oral instruction or repetition. The truths of God weren't simply written in a book that sat on someone's shelf from week to week. The Jews would receive instruction out of the law and teach the law to their children. In the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy, there is a fairly familiar passage that says, Deuteronomy 6.5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. They knew the law of God. They were instructed out of it from the time that they were children. They were tasked with knowing the law and knowing it well, making it always be at the forefront of their minds. They had the privilege of being able to do that. Again, these are all things that were true of the Jews, of the nation of Israel. They had been given these privileges. They had been entrusted with the word of God. And as a result of that knowledge that they had, they were able to discern and use that knowledge. He goes on in verse 19, and he says, And are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. Being God's children and having having been given the law, the Jews were confident in their ability to teach it as well. They had God's word. They could then look outward with that knowledge and had confidence that they could lead others with that knowledge. Now, we know how that works, don't we? You might have a particular expertise in an area, and so whenever that area comes up in conversation, you you might be the resident expert. I work in IT. I work with computers, uh, computer networking, What does that mean? Well, many people don't know what that means. Sometimes even within my own IT department, unfortunately. My dad, for instance, knows that I work in IT. So whenever he has a problem with his iPhone, I get a phone call. Now, I don't mind helping him, but I don't know anything about iPhones. It's not what I do. And I'm not even an Apple guy. I'm an Android guy. I can't even look at my own phone and help him out with the problem that he's having on his iPhone. So I can't usually help with iPhone problems. But when it comes to networking, my area in IT, I can be a guide to the blind. I can be a light to those in darkness because that's something that I have knowledge in, something that I've learned and I know. And that's the picture here. The Jews knew the law. And so they felt as if they could guide the blind in what God's will was, be that light in the darkness. And they should have been able to do that. Again, this is absolutely right. They could and should have had that ability. Now he continues on with that same thought in verse 20. A corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. Corrector of the foolish, he says, having the ability to approve the essential things. 
they could correct someone when they were wrong, showing them their error. Teacher of the immature. They had the ability to bring along those who needed extra instruction or help, to be patient with them and instruct them to a higher level of knowledge. The Deuteronomy passage talked about them teaching their own children. They could do these things. They had this ability. And what made all of this possible? Making them qualified to be able to teach others. It says having, the, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. The law contained everything they needed to live a life that was right before God and to pass that knowledge and truth along. They would be following the will of God. So again, all these things from verse 17 down through verse 20, these were all true. The Jews had all of these things. These things were true of them. But as we know and have talked about, the list isn't shown here because it's a good list, but because it's a list that they fail at. This list of things that Paul presents here is one of two things. First, to the Jew whose heart was right before God, it's a list of privileges and responsibilities that would show a life that belongs to him, knowing the will of God, discerning right from wrong, teaching the world the truth about God. Ideally, that's what this would be, but that's not what it is here. The other possibility is, the second thing, is that to the unbelieving Jew who stands condemned before God, who are the Jews that we are discussing here, it's a railing condemnation. condemnation. These are things that should be true, but through their unbelief, they dishonor God and actually judge themselves by their own words. And that's what we saw in the beginning verses of the chapter. They think more highly of themselves than they ought to think. They stand on who they are without any regard for what the actions of their life show, what that reveals about them. And that's where Paul takes them next. Look at verse 21. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? What do we have here? We have a list of rhetorical questions, examples of where these people fail. He reminds them at first of what it is that they're doing, and then he gives them three distinct examples where they fall short. But he starts off with, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? How can you be a teacher of others when you yourself don't do the things that you're teaching them? Teaching is essential when it comes to God's word. We saw earlier in Deuteronomy that in Israel, they taught God's word. They taught it in the synagogues, again, taught it to their children. Nothing wrong with that. That's how it's supposed to be done. But what's the problem here? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is the problem. They were being hypocrites, teaching against something, but then doing that same thing themselves. Turn with me over to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 15.
in Matthew chapter 15, we see Jesus confronting the Pharisees. And it's over this same thing. But look at how the chapter starts off. Matthew 15, 1. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. The Pharisees. These were the teachers of Israel, by the way. The ones who prided themselves on their knowledge of the law. Paul was a Pharisee himself, remember? These Pharisees, they come to Jesus because they have a problem with what the disciples were doing. They were breaking traditions. Not the law, mind you, but the traditions of the elders. Well, Jesus isn't having any of it. Look at what he says in verse 3. It says, And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother. And by this you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Jesus counters them. Why do you follow traditions instead of the word of God? The law, Ten Commandments here, honor your father and your mother. But their tradition was overriding the law. And you see what he calls them here. Hypocrites. They're paying lip service to God, saying one thing, claiming to honor him, but their actions prove just the opposite. Their actions prove where their heart truly is. Look at verse 10. He goes on to say that um, here. He says in verse 10, After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. What proceeds out of the mouth defiles the man. He'll go on to explain that later down in verses 17 through 20. It's a heart matter. It's a matter of what's in the heart. That's what defiles the man, the condition of the man's heart. And what's in the heart comes out in what a person does and in what they say. Their actions, what they do. When the heart isn't right before God then the person with that heart does not do good things. They can't do good things. Now you got to love verse 12. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? It's like they're saying, uh, Lord, do you know you hurt the Pharisees' feelings? Did you mean to do that? Yeah. Yeah, he meant to do that. Verse 13, this shows the truth of the matter. But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant, shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Here's the point, and the whole reason why we came to Matthew 15. The Pharisees, those who knew the law better than anyone, those who took it upon themselves to teach out of the law, to instruct from the law, to correct those who were in violation of the law. They weren't genuine. 
They weren't genuine plants. They were the weeds in the garden. And furthermore, verse 14, they are blind guides, the blind trying to lead the blind. This was the problem with the Pharisees in Jesus' day. But they weren't alone. This was a systemic problem with the Jews. The Pharisees rising to prominence and leadership was a symptom of how far Israel had fallen. Back in Romans chapter 2. That is precisely Paul's point in these verses, that the Jews were teaching certain things, but they weren't living up to what they taught. So after stating that they were in fact in need of being taught themselves, he lists out a few examples here. Three examples that show their hypocrisy, that they fail in what it is that they're teaching. He says, you who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now what Paul is doing here is using some extreme examples to prove his point. Three rhetorical questions. He's using the obvious examples of hypocrisy to prove the same point that he was making earlier in the chapter. Remember back in verse 1. He said, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And then again in verse 3, he said, but you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So here, with these three areas, he's reaffirming that same point with these extreme examples. He's just getting more specific about it. The point being, they were quick to point out another sin. Were they completely innocent of sin themselves? Maybe they were quick to point out when others stole something, but they weren't above keeping something that didn't belong to them. Maybe they were quick to point out when someone else was caught cheating on his wife, but they were not above lusting after a woman in their own heart. Jesus said that was enough to be guilty of committing adultery with her already. Maybe they were quick to point out when someone was guilty of idol worship, but they failed to show respect for God even in their own temples, maybe by ducking out on the tithes that they were supposed to give or by not showing the proper respect in their own worship of God. Much like in the passage we looked at in Matthew just a few minutes ago, where Jesus reminded them that their own man-made tradition violated the very law of God that they thought they were upholding. So even though they taught against things like these, they were not free from guilt in these areas themselves. And then in verse 23, Paul sums up the point. He says, You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? Now, the New American Standard has this verse as another question, but it's really a concluding statement. All of what has, uh, has been previously brought out is summed up here. They are so caught up in having knowledge of the law that they don't even realize that they are breaking it on a continual basis. They are relying on their knowledge, but they are not doing what it says. That's what we saw in our passage from last time, that they were hearers of the law, but they did not do the law. And by not doing the law, they were dishonoring God. Their actions showing that their heart really was defiled showed them that they were not able to keep the law. In verse 24, 
he uses an Old Testament quote from the prophet Isaiah. He says, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. Here they had set themselves up as being so godly, so religiously superior to the Gentiles, yet because of their hypocrisy, God's name has been blasphemed. They dishonor him and dishonor his name before the whole world. Right? They are the people of God, and yet they fall into sin. What does that say about God? We understand how this works. We see examples of this today. Unfortunately, examples from within the church. What happens anytime a Christian pastor gets caught in some kind of sin? What does that do for the church as a whole? That's a black eye, isn't it? Some kind of public scandal like that happens. It doesn't even have to be our own church or even a true Bible-believing church, just loosely associated with Christianity. You know, people will start to say, oh, see, they're all hypocrites. They do the same things as everybody else. Now think about our own lives, with those around us, with those whom we share the gospel. What happens if we were to fall into sin around those people? We tell people about Jesus Christ. We tell them they need to repent of their sins. Tell them they need to accept the gospel. And then we fall in front of them in some way. What would that do? What does that do for our testimony? What would that do for the cause of our witnessing to them? It's not a real positive impact, is it? That's Paul's point here with this quote from Isaiah. The Jews judged, said that they had all the answers. But then they went and did the same things themselves, dishonoring the very God they claimed to love and serve before the whole world. So what is it that the Jews were doing? Relying on their knowledge. The fact that they know the law, but they don't act upon it. This gives them false assurance. They are trusting in something that can't save them. Now, there's a parallel inference that we can draw from this today. It's not exactly what Paul is talking about, but it's a similar situation. How many people are out there who rely on their knowledge of the Bible? How many people do exactly what these Jews were doing, growing in knowledge, boasting in God, teaching others, but in fact, they don't do what the Bible teaches them to do? They are also directly violating the Word of God and disobeying Him on a daily basis. There are many people out there who have placed their hope in what they know, and not in what they have truly believed, or in what the character of their life really shows. They might say, oh, I know the Bible inside and out. I can quote whole books of the Bible, and yet they don't witness, right? They don't share their faith. They don't serve, right? They're, they're not actively serving in the church. Their life shows no fruit whatsoever. And oftentimes, we let their knowledge be enough of an indication to us, even though we have never seen fruit in their lives. To borrow Paul's phrase, when someone who bears the name Christian has no fruit of salvation in their life, there's something wrong there, regardless of what it is that they know or claim that they know. So now we come to verse 25. We see Paul pick up on one specific area of Judaism, and that's the practice of circumcision. He goes a bit deeper here. 
not just the law, but another thing that the Jews relied on were their rites or their religious practices. And so he says in verse 25, for indeed circumcision is of value if you practice the law. You see his transition here, not just to keeping the law, the rite of circumcision, which even predated the giving of the law. Circumcision was a sign that God gave to Abraham, a sign of the Abrahamic covenant that God had given to him. Back in chapter 17 of the book of Genesis, verse 9, it said, God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Circumcision was an act of obedience to God. And it was a physical reminder of the covenant relationship that Abraham and his descendants had with God. But it had no spiritual significance. And yet... The Jews made it out to be more than it was. The Jews made it out to be so crucial to their spiritual lives that they actually got to the point where they had writings that made such claims as circumcised men do not descend into Gehenna or hell. At the last, Abraham will sit at the entrance to Gehenna and will not let any circumcised man of Israel go down there. And another one, circumcision will deliver Israel from Gehenna. Circumcision was given such prominence that the Jews felt that the act itself was an act of salvation. That the the fact that they were circumcised guaranteed their entrance to heaven. And no external right can do that. But circumcision wasn't a pointless act. They were correct to do it because it was an act of obedience. Paul says circumcision is of value if you practice the law. For those who practice the law, who are they? They were the same as those who do good that we saw earlier in the chapter. Only those whose lives had been transformed by saving faith do good or could practice the law. For them, the sign of circumcision had value because it was an act of obedience. By obeying God, it was a symbol of the true condition of the heart. And the heart is really what's in view here, the heart's true condition. I want you to see a couple of Old Testament passages, because this concept isn't new. Turn back with me to the book of Leviticus, chapter 26 of Leviticus. We tend to think, oh, this is a change from Old Testament to New Testament. But it's not a change. We have Old Testament passages that show this same thing that Paul's talking about here. Down in verse 40 of Leviticus chapter 26. When Israel was in sin, God says in Leviticus 26.40, If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled, so that they can so that they then make amends for their iniquity then i will remember my covenant with jacob and i will remember also my covenant with isaac and my covenant with abraham as well and i will remember the land 
See, the issue here with God, their sins and their rebellion against him, but those sins came from an uncircumcised heart. He doesn't say, well, they rebelled, but as long as they were circumcised, they were okay. Nope, that's not what it says. God wasn't concerned here about whether they were physically circumcised, but about the condition of their heart. In sin, rebellion, it is uncircumcised, not showing the sign of belonging to him. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 10. We'll look at one more passage. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Look down at verse 12. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? So here God is telling them what he requires, to fear the Lord and obey him. He says in verse 13, to keep the commandments and the statutes. Now skip down to verse 15. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples, as it is this day. So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. God has chosen them as his people, and therefore what is required of them? To circumcise their heart. Make their heart belong to him. The condition of the heart is the primary concern. So, come back to Romans chapter 2. Circumcision was a physical sign of what should have been a spiritual condition. If the heart wasn't also circumcised, then the physical was of no use, which is what he means in the last part of verse 25. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. If you aren't practicing the law, doing good, then your circumcision has no value. In verses 26 and 27, Paul deepens the wound for them. Look at verses 26 and 27 with me. If therefore the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, uh, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? So in the previous verse, if you are circumcised but don't keep the law, your circumcision is nothing. Now he turns the tables on them. He tells them that a man who isn't physically circumcised, in other words, a Gentile, if, if this Gentile were to prove himself to be obedient to God by keeping the law, that man would be regarded as circumcised because he would be showing his heart to be right before God. And furthermore, he goes on in verse 27 to say that man, the Gentile, would actually be able to sit in judgment against the Jew because he would be judged a doer of the law when the Jew was not, which was, of course, unheard of for the Jews. So what's Paul's point? Is it to say that Gentiles can keep the law? No. Is it to say that the law now belongs to someone other than the Jews? No. 
Some take it to mean that. But that's not Paul's point here. Remember, this is fallen man that we're dealing with here. Paul isn't saying that a Jew will come in and keep the law and be saved over a Jew. His point is the same as what we've already been talking about in the chapter. Physical circumcision is irrelevant. Having the law is irrelevant. It's what you do that's relevant. If you're circumcised and are under the law but don't do it, you will be judged and perish. If you're uncircumcised and don't have the law, and violate the basic aspects of the law that you have in your heart, that everyone has, you will be judged and perish. Anyone, if they do good, if they live their life in perfect obedience to the righteous standard of God, whether they are circumcised or not, whether they have the law or not, they would be proven to be righteous under God's judgment. But, as we've talked about before, no one other than Jesus Christ, fits that bill. Paul will go on to talk about that in the next chapter. Verse 9, there is none righteous, no, not one. Verse 20, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. So this is not Paul saying, do this, keep the law and be saved, but rather If you are not able to keep the righteous standard of God and keep it perfectly, which you're not, no one is able to do that, then who you are doesn't matter. The impartial God will judge you, whether you are Jew or Gentile. Now we come to verses 28 and 29. We're going to see Paul elaborate on this heart condition for the Jews, for those as he started off with, started off the section with, who call themselves Jew. Because where he's going with this is that not all who call themselves a Jew really are Jews. Look at verse 28. For he is not a Jew who was one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who was one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. This ties back to the first statement of the passage. If you bear the name Jew. Paul has progressed here to show that those who call themselves Jews were not living like Jews in obedience to God. And he will tell them they have no right to claim that name. Being a Jew is more than just a physical relationship, just like we saw with circumcision. Paul here equates being a true Jew with what goes on inside, not outside. In the heart, not merely in the flesh. The Jews looked to their national heritage. The fact that they were descended from Abraham and relied on that, in addition to the other things that we've talked about. Being a descendant of Abraham, in and of itself, doesn't make you an heir to the promises of God. It was important to be physically descended from Abraham, to receive the promises that God had made to the nation of Israel. That was a part of it. There are specific promises that were and will be fulfilled to the physical descendants of Abraham. And we talked about several of those in our study of Daniel. 
But that wasn't all that was involved. It wasn't the only requirement. You had to also be a spiritual descendant of Abraham. It's not enough to be from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob outwardly, but a true Jew is one inwardly, having been circumcised in his heart. We already looked at some of those passages in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, Old Testament passages that also talked about this. The requirement for the nation of Israel to truly be a part of the nation was to have a circumcised heart. There, there are others. For time, I'll just read a few of these for you. Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6 says, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. Still talking to the nation of Israel there, still talking to physical Jews and their descendants, but talking about circumcision of the heart. Prophet Jeremiah, 4th chapter, verse 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Circumcise your heart, men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Still in Jeremiah, the ninth chapter, verse 25. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised, Egypt and Judah and Edom and the sons of Ammon and Moab and all those inhabiting the desert who clip their hair on their temples. For all the nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised of heart. Circumcised yet uncircumcised. These are Jews, those of the nation of Israel, yet they are in sin. They are uncircumcised. How? Of heart. That's the same thing that Paul is saying. They are physical descendants. Outward characteristics all line up, but not true Jews because of their heart. The last one is in the New Testament, the book of Acts, chapter 7. It's a New Testament reference, but we'll see that it relates back to the Jews in the Old Testament. This is where Stephen, just before he was stoned to death at the hand of the Jews, as Paul was there, Paul would have heard him say this. So keep that in mind. Acts 7, verse 51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit, you are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Jews who did not keep the law, doing just as their fathers did. What was true of them? Uncircumcised in heart. You see, this isn't new. This isn't a foreign concept to the Jews. They had heard over and over again from God, circumcision, true circumcision, is truly a matter of the heart. And that's what Paul is saying here in verses 28 and 29 of Romans chapter 2. Now take note here. This is not talking 
about having a spiritual Israel, nor is it about the church becoming spiritual Jews. Some people, covenant and reformed theology, take these verses as evidence that the church is now Israel, and that anyone who is saved in the church, we are now the spiritual, the new spiritual Jews. That's not what Paul is saying here. If these were the only two verses in the Bible, then maybe we could make a case for that. But there are many other places, even later on in Romans, which we'll get to, where we'll see that that Israel and the church are treated differently and distinctly, and that God has a plan for both. Paul is simply saying here that it isn't enough to have the physical characteristics of a Jew outwardly. You must also be one inwardly to be considered a true Jew. Again, it is a condition of the heart. A person is saved by the Spirit, not by the letter or the law. Salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit of God, changing our lives from the inside out. Not a matter of simply having that knowledge, but working out our relationship with Him by being obedient to Him. For whose glory is it? He adds at the very end of verse 29, And His praise is not from men, but from God. It's for, it's for God's glory. It's always for God's glory. Those who are truly obedient to him are concerned about what he thinks, not what men think. And that brings us around from where we started in chapter 1. Men who exchange the glory of God for the glory of creation. Give him no credit, no glory. Here, the true Jew is concerned only about the praise of God. Once again, we can see the parallels to this today. People can call themselves Baptist, Lutheran, Catholic, even just Christian. But what we call ourselves doesn't matter. What matters is what we are inside. Many people have assurance based on what they were born into, what family they belong to, what church they were raised in. They might say, I know I'm saved because I've gone to a Bible-believing church my whole life. That's great. Now, What's your heart like? What fruit do you bear? Some people use the phrase, I grew up in a Christian home. Like that gives them salvation by association. That simply means their parents accepted Christ and taught them about Christ. Now, what have they done with that knowledge? How have they responded to the gospel message? That's what matters. We can all have... uh, We can all have the knowledge of scriptures, be able to recite verses, know the major themes of the Bible, but have we ever really responded to the message? Maybe we've been baptized and we take the Lord's Supper, but how are we living today? What is the true condition of our heart before God? We can call ourselves Christians, but what are we truly on the inside?